you're on a desolate road in the middle of nowhere. After spending the last three months wading through galaxy season as best you can, your excitement is palpable for what the immediate future holds. Driving northwest towards the mountains, your goal is high altitude and to be as far away from a city as possible. You've got a friend with Turning you, the and he's checking the weather report for the like fifth time. Still clear, clear skies, light winds, night, three miles night. per hour. Enjoy the weather. You planned this trip six months in advance. You planned around New Moon. You planned around the tourism. You planned around your job, your spouse, your world, everything. The one thing that you can't plan for is the weather. You did check the historical data and pick June because it seemed like the least likely time to get rained on. But just because it didn't rain last year, doesn't mean it won't rain this year. So far though, it's looking good. It's looking real good. Two weeks ago, the 10 day forecast said a 50% chance of rain and you were very nervous. The plan was to cancel the whole trip and reschedule for new moon in July if the weather didn't cooperate. But that was the last thing you wanted to happen because you've been planning this trip for half a year. It's nighttime. You left at 3 a.m. because it's a long drive to get there and you're not sure what it'll be like setting up. You do know that you want plenty of daylight hours to get your bearings and set your gear up. You also know where you're heading is dark. Real dark. You're heading to Cherry Springs Park in Pennsylvania, one of the best certified dark sky parks on the entire East Coast. You pick this spot after looking at lightpollution.info in determining that it is a class 2 Bortle, which is about as good as it gets with this elevation on the east coast. Being higher up means less atmospheric haze to deal with. Cherry Springs is great, but rumor has it, out west, there's even darker skies. The brighter these damn cities get though, the less of the night sky we see, and Cherry Springs surely enough will fall victim to this. In 20 years, it could be a Bortle 4, maybe even a 5. But for now, for today, for your trip, it's a beautiful Bortle too, and the weather report says crystal clear. You have three nights, and it's nebula season. The Milky Way is above. Welcome to paradise. Astrocast. It's episode six. I'm your host, Drew. Thank you for joining us this week. Kind of a crummy week for astronomy in Charlotte. I've been looking forward to New Moon for quite some time. And of course, we get rained out all weekend long. Star party at the observatory got canceled. And just all the fun that I've been looking forward to for two weeks just kind of got yanked out from under me. Uh, but you know, that that's part of being an astronomer, unfortunately. We don't control the weather. All we can do is, you know, do our best to predict 
and plan and then take advantage when we do get optimal conditions. And one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize when they're uh, first getting into astronomy is how rare it is to get those really good conditions. Now, when I was newer to astronomy, I, you know, any time at all, I'm going out, you know, full moon, no moon, who cares? Uh, but as I progressed in the hobby and I wanted to get better and better photos, I pretty quickly realized like lots of others do that without something like a duo narrow band filter, you can't really get great results whenever the moon's more than half full and, you know, within 20 degrees of your target or what have you. So, you know, today we're going to talk about the various astronomical seasons how they happen, when they happen. We're going to talk about how to best take advantage of the time that we're given and what to do during times like the one that's coming up real soon, uh, galaxy season, when you're a wide field astrophotographer. So for those who don't know, galaxy season in <clears throat> the northern hemisphere falls in spring. And this can be a pretty tough time for a lot of people who are big into astrophotography because when you're new, you generally start with wide field. And when I say wide field, I mean very wide images as far as the uh, scale is concerned. So we generally like to shoot things like beautiful nebula, like the Orion Nebula or the Pleiades. And these are, you know, relatively large targets compared to things like galaxies, with a few exceptions, Andromeda, Triangulum Galaxy, obviously, and uh, a few others as well. But whenever you have a wide field astrophotography rig, it can be tough to shoot galaxies because they are so much farther away and so much smaller than the nebula that we target within our own Milky Way. So we're going to talk about what to do during this time. Um, you know, what is the wisest way to spend your time during galaxy season if you don't have, you know, a 185 millimeter APO refractor like that beautiful new one that I saw Ascar released. Oh my goodness. Has anyone seen photos of this telescope? Uh, so first of all, it, yes, it is expensive. I think it goes for around $5,000. I'll check the price on that in just a second. But I saw a picture online today of a guy who had just gotten it and his girlfriend, significant other, was laying on the ground beside it. And the thing is literally as big as she is. And even at $5,000 to get a refractor of that size and quality is actually an unreal value. So I think it gives us uh, something to aspire to a lot of us. You know, $5,000 is a, is a lot of money, uh, particularly for someone like me who has a, you know, a hard time saving up 1500 bucks for a mount. But you know, it's something aspirational that that we can get to if we, you know, save up and maybe make a little bit of money off of our hobby, if we can find a way to do that and then just kind of keep putting that aside, putting that aside. You know, one of the coolest parts about making prints since I started doing it, uh, I guess about six months ago now, is whenever I make a little bit of extra money from those prints, I like to put it aside and put it towards astronomy gear. And that's something uh, that a lot of people can do once they, you know, get a little bit better at the hobby. Why not make some prints and sell your artwork, especially if you got family and friends that are always, you know, oh, my gosh, it's so beautiful. I love this. You know, say, hey, do you want to buy a print? I'll gladly make you one. And we, we can talk a little bit more about uh, what's involved in that. I actually planned on topping, talking about that today as that's one of the uh, things that I'll be doing this galaxy season um, because I do not have the aforementioned 
185 millimeter focal length APO refractor that Asgard just released. Uh, though I could certainly uh, dip my toes into that water if given the opportunity. So uh, thanks again for tuning into the Astrocast. We're doing a couple things different this week. Uh, we've gotten a little bit of feedback, which I greatly appreciate. I've heard back from many of you listeners. Um, some of you have reached out to me directly. Please feel free to email me, by the way, if you hear the show and you have a question or a mark or anything at all, please reach out. Uh, you can get me on Twitter or X. Uh, that is at AstroCastRu. Or if you want to shoot me an email, uh, RuAstroCast at gmail.com. And I'll be happy to answer any questions you have, any comments you have. And one of the comments that did come up a couple of times for, for people asking me, what is up with the breaks, Ru? Why are you taking breaks that are two seconds long with uh, you know no kind of filler whatsoever? Uh, in fact, my wife was the first one to bring it up. She said, why are you telling me that you're going to take a quick break and then be right back? And then I get up to go grab a drink or something and you're already back two seconds later. And I guess I might owe a little bit of an apology for that. Uh, but the idea there is that at some point we would like to have sponsors on the show and, you know, two or three times a show, I would like to be able to go to a break and advertise for said sponsor, because ideally we would like to partner with various astronomy companies so I can do reviews and what have you when we get to that point. But all that being said, I realize that is a bridge we have not crossed yet. So there is no need to be inserting those things and bogging down the listening experience. And after reading up on it a little bit more, I realized that you can actually do pre-roll and post-roll ads that aren't so intrusive on the podcast. I really don't want to take away from the listening experience at all. That's not what we want to do. So we're going to go ahead and kill that. So you will not hear that one sound effect. I guess it was two sound effects again going forward. Uh, we're officially killing the uh, the in-episode break uh, for the time being, unless that changes for some great reason in the future. You don't have to worry about that coming back. So let's just have a quick moment of silence for science fiction sci-fi electronic alarm disarming dot wave All right, so it's over and gone. Let's go ahead and dive right in. So I wanted to talk about the astronomical seasons this week because I saw somebody comment on a post earlier last week and they had said something along the lines of, hey guys, why can't I see the Milky Way right now? I went to a really dark sky and I'm out here. It's about eight o'clock at night and I'm looking up and I just don't see anything. And, you know, I got my camera out and I'm taking pictures of the night sky. Where's the Milky Way? I, I don't understand. I thought, you know, if I was at a really dark site, I'd be able to see it. And um, that's actually not always the case. So, in fact, uh, summertime in North America is going to be the prime time to see the Milky Way in its core. Now, that's not to say that we don't see the Milky Way in the winter. We do. Uh, what we are actually seeing when we look at the Milky Way is the uh Virgo arm of the Milky Way galaxy. So as you may know, we are a spiral galaxy in the Milky Way. And the part that we see at night that goes, you know, directly overhead in the summertime, that's really bright if you're in a dark area, is one of the spiral arms of the Milky Way galaxy. And in the wintertime, it is still visible, but it is a very small and faint line. And if you're not in the, you know, absolute darkest skies, you might have a really hard time seeing it. So even if you did make a trip somewhere, you know, in the summertime, you could see the Milky Way really well. Uh, you might not be seeing it so well in the wintertime. So 
what do we have in the winter time? Well, we have winter targets like Orion. So whenever, you know, fall starts to roll around and it starts to get a little bit of chill in the air, one of my absolute favorite things to do is to, you know, get up really early in the morning and look outside and see if Orion is risen. So what you may not know about astronomy, if you're new to the subject, is that, you know, throughout the year, we see different parts of the night sky. So if you picture the earth as a sphere, which it is, but then divide that sphere into 24 equal portions with one half being night and one half being day. And let's just say for the sake of this argument that it's the uh, the March equinox, the spring vernal equinox. We're going to have an even 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of nighttime. And what we're looking at, obviously, is nighttime. So during those 12 hours of nighttime, there is a full 12 hours of stars on the other side of the planet that we can't see. And this is part of why the seasons change and we get new you know, constellations in the sky depending on what time of year it is. You can always tell that winter is coming when Orion starts to rise in the east. You can always tell that summer is coming when Cygnus starts to rise in the east. In fact, uh, this morning, actually it wasn't this morning, I take that back, it was three or four mornings ago when we had an actual clear sky. I was up very early. I was out uh, about 5 a.m. and I looked east and I'll be damned if I didn't see Cygnus. So it, you know, obviously five o'clock in the morning is not when most astronomers are out doing their work. Uh, some might be wrapping it up at that point. But if you ever want to preview what the next season stars are going to be, just get up really early and have a look. Uh, last year, I got on a real big row Ophiuchi kick and I wanted to image it so badly. And I just wasn't patient enough to wait for, you know, the middle of summer when it's at its best. And I started getting up in, uh, you know, May at God, two o'clock in the morning and coming out to image it. And that's a really cool thing that you can do in astronomy is preview, you know, the next season stars. So, you know, being that we are about, I don't know, halfway through winter now, it's the middle of February. You wouldn't know it's winter in Charlotte because it's 60 degrees every day and we haven't even seen a, a trace of snow, but that's a story for a different time. Uh, we are coming up on galaxy season. And if you listen to what I said earlier in the show, you'll remember galaxy season isn't always the best time for wide field astrophotography, which is, you know, shooting nebula photos, shooting Andromeda, etc. And we kind of got to find something to do with our time besides take pictures of Markarian's chain. Markarian's chain, by the way, it's a stretch of galaxies that actually forms part of the Virgo cluster. And it actually lies along a very smoothly curved line. Uh, Charles Messier actually first discovered two of the galaxies, uh, M84 and M86 in 1781. And then the others were primarily discovered by uh, William Herschel, a very beautiful site for sure, and a relatively wide astronomical site as far as that goes. But many of the other galaxies are just too small to get with something like an 80 millimeter refractor telescope. 
The Leo triplet is another cool target that wide-field astronomers can go for in the springtime. It doesn't show up quite as large as something like Markarian's chain, but it does contain, uh, as the name implies, three beautiful galaxies. So I'm naming all these targets just so you have a few ideas for things to shoot in the springtime if you don't have a uh, super up-close-and-personal, you know, like a Edge HD 11-type telescope with a longer focal length. And... Another thing about the focal length of these telescopes, when you have something that is significantly longer in its range, is that things like guiding become much more critical and prone to error. So you have to have much more exacting equipment in order to guide on stars when you're at focal lengths that are zoomed in on galaxies, like something like an Edge HD 11. And oftentimes, astrophotographers will employ things like off-axis guiders and even encoders and their mount. But those are extremely expensive. In fact, the uh, most of the astronomical mounts that I've seen that have encoders included with them, things like, you know, your Planescape type rigs can easily be, you know, 10000 or more dollars up to the you know price of a house. So if you're like me and you're not quite there yet with the uh, Galaxy Killer rig and you're still working your way towards something like an Edge HD 11, it's good to know what is available in the springtime and what you can shoot and what you can do. This will be a time for me personally where I will be working on my technique a lot more. I plan to spend a lot of time in PixInsight. I'm going to go over my last year's data and I'm going to reprocess everything and just try to get the most accurate and really color accurate images that I can. I had a lot of fun in the last 12 months playing around in PixInsight, you know, saturating colors heavily and making things really pop off of the image. But I look back at those images now and I think to myself, man, I wonder how much better they could look if I really, really took my time and went through the the finer details in this work. And something like Galaxy Season really gives an astrophotographer who predominantly shoots wide field targets a good opportunity to do this. And I think a lot of times we get caught up in, you know, getting out and shooting with our scope and our processing and our book smarts, if you will, tend to fall behind a little bit because of this. Everybody loves going out with their telescope setting up shooting. Obviously I do, or I wouldn't be talking to you right now, but you know, sometimes it's good to reflect and rework data, um, go over things that maybe you didn't do perfectly in the past and see how you can improve on them. And, uh, for me personally, springtime is going to be a great time to do that. Another great thing that you can do in the springtime if you're not shooting quite as much as you would in the winter or the summer is clean, lubricate, repair, tune your mount, whatever it takes. So I'm actually highly considering sending my CEM26 into Ioptron uh, just for general maintenance. I feel like it could do much better on its guiding. I see a lot of people post RMS in the under 0.10, and I know a lot of that has to do with seeing, etc. But I haven't been as highly impressed with my CEM26's guiding capabilities since the first year that I got it. Um, the first summer that I had it and was using Nina and PhD2 exclusively, the guiding was frankly incredible. I was usually down to 0.5 or lower, and now I'm generally around 1.0, sometimes a little bit higher. And I just, I generally have a 
feeling that the tuning could be better and that I could be getting better guiding. So I'm definitely considering it. I might probably just end up, you know, taking it apart myself, replacing some belts, replacing some bearings, relubing things, etc. I'm a tinkerer. I like to take stuff apart and fix it. So I'll probably do that before I send it into iOptron, but I'm definitely going to do my research first. And that's something really important before you ever, ever even think about taking apart your mount. Ask yourself if you are fully capable of repairing it, because if you're not a very handy person, you can really mess up these mounts if you're not careful. Uh, Maybe if you got a friend or even better, like we talked about last week, join an astronomy club. Somebody can help you tune your mount a lot better than you could ever do it yourself. If you're somebody who's new to the hobby and just don't know all the inner workings of a German equatorial mount. All right, so that's galaxy season in a nutshell. They call it galaxy season for a reason. It's because it's mostly galaxies that are visible in the night sky. As far as deep sky objects are concerned, there is a lot to shoot. Uh, I don't want you to think that there's you know nothing to aim a small refractor telescope at in the springtime of course there is but generally speaking you're going to work your way through those targets a lot faster than you would and let's say drum roll nebula season so nebula season is how we refer to the summertime in north america so this is when the core of the milky way like we were talking about earlier that really bright band that is the arm of the Milky Way comes into view and on the the lower horizon in the south, you can actually see the core of the Milky Way. And that's where the majority of our visible nebula in the summertime lie. And there are a lot of targets that you can shoot on a wide field astrophotography rig in the summertime. More so than that, though, without even having a wide field astrophotography rig, you can take incredible photos of the Milky Way with just a camera. I see people all the time putting up awesome shots of the Milky Way and all they have is a tripod and a DSLR. I've seen some pretty good shots with just a smartphone, believe it or not. I'm not going to say that they're the kind of shots that you'd want to blow up and print and put on your wall, but just the fact that you can pick up nebulosity at all with a smartphone sensor is kind of incredible and really speaks to how far that technology has come in such a short amount of time. I love summertime because to me, it's the most recognizable. You you see so many constellations. When I see Cygnus starting to rise above my head and I see the summer triangle, which is the three stars, Vega, Altair, and Deneb that appear to make up a very large triangle. And it's always a dead giveaway in the astronomical community that summertime has arrived in the Northern Hemisphere. Cygnus in particular is a special one to me because... It was the first summer constellation that I learned, and it was really the first time I looked at a constellation other than Orion the Hunter and realized what they were thinking when they named it the Swan, because once you see Cygnus and get a really good look at it, you say, oh, wait a minute, that does kind of look like a bird with its wings spread out and its tail flying behind it. And then, you know, once you see that with your own two eyes, you start to say, well, wait a minute. Now I know why they call, you know, Canis Major uh, the dog star because or (laughs) Canis Major, the constellation is known as the dog constellation because it does kind of look like a dog. You see the front legs and the hind legs and the tail. And then, you know, Sirius, the dog star is embedded within. And that's one of the uh, coolest things about all the different, you know, astronomical seasons is learning the various constellations that 
come along with them. Because once you learn some of those constellations, you start to look up at the night sky at nine or 10 o'clock at night whenever you're out and you say, okay, I know what time of year it is. You know, if I ever got stuck in a, uh, you know, a time loop of some sort and woke up and didn't know if it was spring or fall, I could just look up at the sky and instantly know if it was just after dark. So I would like to challenge you, dear listener, if you are new to astronomy and do not know many constellations yet. Uh, something that I started doing myself last year, uh, might have been the year before actually, was I decided that I was going to start learning one constellation every season. And I usually ended up learning more than that, but I made a conscious effort to always learn one new constellation every time we change seasons. So in the spring, I like to learn one. Leo is a good one to learn in the spring. In the summer, I like to learn one. Cygnus is a great one to learn in the summer. In the fall, I like to learn one. Uh, fall and winter, let's just say Taurus. Okay. Orion is one that pretty much everyone knows. It's the most recognizable constellation in the night sky, but I didn't even know Taurus, uh, for a long time. Uh, you know, after getting into astronomy, obviously I pretty quickly learned Taurus and all the others in the vicinity. Uh, but yeah, go ahead and challenge yourself to, to learn some of these constellations if you're new. And, uh, if you already know most of the main constellations, maybe look into learning some of the, uh, harder to find ones that you can only see when you get out to the really dark skies, something that blew me away the first time I made a trip to a Bortle 1 dark sky site. And uh, just in case you don't know, when I say Bortle 1, I'm referring to the uh, Bortle darkness scale uh, with 1 being the darkest that there is and 10 being, you know, the middle of Manhattan on a full moon. That's Bortle 10, uh, not literally on a full moon. It, it's all about the artificial lightness that is seeping into the, to the night sky is how they determine the Bortle scale. But a Bortle 1 is the darkest sky that you can see. I guess technically there's something called a zero, I believe. I've read somewhere. I could be wrong about that. Uh, somebody will have to fact check me on that. But anyway, when you get out to these really dark skies, it's actually quite difficult to pick out those easy constellations that you're able to see, you know, in your uh, Bortle 5, which is much, you know, most suburban neighborhoods are anywhere from five to seven, I would say, because there's so many more stars. It is unreal how many stars you see if you're at a true dark sky site. And just something as trivial as finding Polaris can become a challenge. So learn more of those constellations, get your bearings and learn the night sky. So getting back to the summertime, summertime is the, the height of astrophotography. In my opinion, it's when the best targets are out. You have things like the Eagle Nebula, you've got the Lagoon Nebula, which is just so beautiful. And then I believe the Trifid is right beside it. That's something that you can frame up in something like I have very well. I have an awesome picture that I took when we made our first dark sky trip of the Lagoon and Trifid Nebula. And they're just really beautiful targets that you can only see whenever that core of the Milky Way is visible. And this is also the time when, you know, if you're brand new to astronomy and you're wanting to get those incredible photos of the Milky Way, like the person that I referenced earlier was asking about, that's the time to do it. So, you know, anytime late in the evening on June, you know, it might even be 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. And then, you know, I would say in July, it's August, September, you know, that core of the Milky Way is going to be visible throughout the night. So awesome time of year for astrophotography. Definitely the time when you hope for the best weather and usually get the worst, particularly in the South. We get a lot of summer storms down here. So 
Clear skies are hard to come by in the summer, but man, there's so many cool targets out that you can see. So if you're planning a trip, I would highly recommend, you know, if you're making your first dark sky trip, try doing it in the summertime because being able to to see the Milky Way with your own eyes, as I've said before and will always say, is a very, very deep spiritual experience. It's it's an incredible sight to see yourself and highly encourage everyone to do it at some point in their life. So I'm talking about how great summertime is, but secretly, uh, I, I must admit that I start getting up really early in the morning around, you know, September and I see Orion start coming up in the east. And this for me is actually like the coolest time of the year in astronomy whenever Orion starts making his return. I'm kind of notorious on uh, Facebook for my family and friends. I bother them, you know, Orion's rising, winter's coming, winter's coming, Orion's here. You know, I get so excited and I just geek out whenever Orion starts coming up because you know that winter's finally coming. And even though we do refer to the summertime as nebula season, there are a lot of a whole lot of really beautiful, incredible nebula to image during the winter. And when I say the winter, I am loosely uh, calling fall as well in that season. That's kind of an odd in between where you can still image a lot of the summertime targets, um, but not necessarily all of the wintertime targets until you get later into the season. You know, now, right now, it's mid-February and Orion is already darn near at the meridian whenever, you know, it gets dark out at night. So he's quickly coming and going, but he usually starts showing up, you know, around December. And if you get up earlier, like I say, if you want to preview next season stars, just get up at two or three o'clock in the morning, walk outside when it's really clear and you'll be able to do this. And if you don't believe me, just wake up in, you know, let's say late September around 3 a.m. and walk outside and I bet you you'll see Orion starting to come over that eastern horizon. And it's interesting that I say that because, I, like I said, a few nights ago, I woke up really early in the morning and I saw Cygnus coming up over the horizon, which means that summer is indeed right around the corner. So it's just, it's something that's that's super cool. Um, when you start studying the night sky and you start seeing how the constellations come and go as the seasons change, I feel like you're able to have a deeper appreciation of the night sky and how the earth rotates and how our solar system exists in the Milky Way. And just overall, you have a just a better understanding of how the night sky works. And I think all of us can appreciate that. So you've got your summer targets, your winter targets, and then springtime, which is galaxy season. And that would be an excellent time if you have the money to buy something like that new Ascar 185. I just I did look it up. I was curious about the price of uh, four thousand seven hundred and ninety nine U.S. dollars. But again, if you compare that to other triplet refractors that are that size, they often come in at you know anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand dollars. So even though that might seem like an eye popping price, what Ascar is doing is actually a pretty crazy value. And that's something that I'm going to aspire to because personally, I would love to have a really large refractor. I have yet to get into the world of reflector imaging, you know, things like your Rasses and your Schmidt Cassegrains, etc., are just telescopes that I have not personally experimented with yet. I do love the idea of a RASA scope. And if you don't know what a RASA is, it's a, it's a very fast. And when I say fast, I'm referring to 
to the f-stops of a scope. And basically with f-stops, the lower the number, the faster the telescope or camera lens. Uh, and like I said earlier, generally your refractor telescope is going to have a higher number somewhere between you know f5 to f7, generally speaking. And something like our rassoscope has f2. So it is able to gather a lot more light, which we interpret as data as astrophotographers in a much more shorter period of time. And the way f-stops works, it's not actually a linear scale. So for example, if you have an f1.4 lens, that's letting in a ton of light. It's a very, very fast lens. But if you go down to just f2, which you would think is also a very fast lens, and it is, but it's still only letting in half as much light as the same f1.4 lens. And then every time you stop down from there, it's going to let in half as much. So F1.4, wide open, lots of light. F2, half as much light as 1.4. F2.8, half as much light as F2. And so and so it goes. So as you can see, when you go from something like an F2 telescope to an F7 telescope, you can gather a, you know, the equivalent of an hour's worth of data in something like 10 minutes with a RASA. And I'm not gonna get into the specifics of exactly how much data, but needless to say, RASAs gather a very large amount of information in a very short period of time. All right, so to wrap up that section, uh, prepare for galaxy season, it is coming. If you're like me and you have a wide field refractor and you do not have a galaxy killer type telescope, maybe you know do some maintenance on your gear, make sure that it's all ready and you know willing to go for the summertime once nebula season rolls around. Work on your processing. Let's go ahead and open up PixInsight and gather up that old data, you know, throw it into PI and let's see if we can make it look better because that is an excellent use of time that will pay huge dividends when the summertime rolls around. So I want to go ahead and switch gears now. Um, I do have something else I would like to discuss um, that I'm hoping a lot of people know about, but newcomers to astronomy may not know too much about. And that is a particular piece of software um, that we can use as astronomers for planning our sessions, for seeing what's in the night sky at any given time, for seeing what the field of view will look like with our particular scope. And if this all sounds like, you know, a very incredible piece of software, this will probably blow your mind. It's actually completely free. And of course, the software I am referring to is Stellarium. So their website, and I will definitely put this in the show notes, is going to be stellarium.org. This is an incredible piece of software that I discovered a few years ago, and it is an open source planetarium for your computer. So it shows you a very realistic rendition of the night sky and gives you many, many options that other software I've used for planetariums. I'm um, looking at you, Celestron, with the, uh, the free software that you include with your telescopes. Really, it just can't hold a candle to Stellarium uh, because it is just so in-depth with so many different options and customizations available to the end user. So Stellarium is actually an open source piece of software. And for those of you that don't know, open source means that the code is available for anyone and everyone to review. And this is a great thing in the software community because it means that the developers are not hiding anything. If you were hiding something, you wouldn't make your code open source. So that's a great thing in and of itself. 
Another cool thing about Stellarium is that it is available on all platforms. So a lot of stuff you see is just on Windows, but not Stellarium. You can get it on Windows. You can get it for Mac. You can even get it for Linux if you are running a Linux machine, which a lot of people are on their uh, mini PCs that are controlling their telescopes. You can use Stellarium and Stellarium can actually connect to your telescope. And if you set it up, you can use Stellarium for the go to function. So when I was first getting started in astronomy, I thoroughly enjoyed connecting Stellarium to my telescope because it helped me visualize where I was looking in the night sky and where I wanted to point my telescope instead of just, you know, typing in an object number in the Nina catalog, for example, I was able to actually look through planetarium software and look at the night sky, find the object, you know, get a little bit of a look for how it actually looks in the night sky. And you can even frame it up because if you put in the details for your specific telescope and camera, it will actually show you exactly what your frame will look Look like at that target and it even allows you to do things like rotate the frame as if you were rotating your camera on your telescope so you can frame it up perfectly so it's an extremely good planning tool uh, it works great for planning but me personally I like Stellarium so much because I just love to play around in it you can change your location so like for example I live in North America and you know the the sights that we see in the night sky are all pretty uh, similar, but if I wanted to in Stellarium, I could say that I am in Chile this week, and I could see the uh, you know large Magellanic cloud and the small Magellanic cloud, and you know all the different uh, targets that I am not able to see in the northern hemisphere. At least I can see you know what they would look like in the sky in the southern hemisphere by using Stellarium. Another cool thing about it is there's actually a mobile app for Stellarium. It's not quite as as fully featured as the desktop version, obviously, because with the desktop version, you have access to just a lot more features and plugins, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's really cool when you're on the go. I still prefer Sky Safari Pro over Stellarium Mobile for when I'm using my phone. But if you wanted to uh, frame something up, that uh, functionality is available if you get Stellarium Pro, and that is available on Android and iOS. So some of the things that you can do in Stellarium, uh, first of all, it has a gigantic uh, default catalog that has over 600,000 stars within it. So if you can see it in the night sky, it generally will have that star listed. Um, but the beauty really is that there are additional plugins and catalogs that you can download and add on to Solarium. Say, for example, that a new comet is discovered like uh, C2023 was uh, early last spring, if everyone remembers the green comet that we all wanted to have a look at. I believe it was 2023. I'll have to look up the name of it. But say there, there's a new comet that's discovered and you want to have a look at it and you go into the ASI Air and it does not show you that comet when you search for it because it hasn't been updated. Well, you can go into Stellarium and it actually connects with an online registration of all of the comets in the night sky, including ones that have been recently discovered. And all you'll need to do is actually go in and refresh that catalog and it will immediately download the most up-to-date information for these comets. So then you can locate exactly where it is in the night sky and then use those coordinates to input them into your, say, ASI Air or NINA and go ahead and locate the object. In fact, you can connect Stellarium directly with NINA 
so you can use the two hand in hand to work together. Uh, Nina does have a built-in planetarium feature, but Stellarium for me is just so much more fully featured that I love using it. There are some other advanced features within Stellarium as well. Uh, you can actually input your own landscape. So say that you've got trees in a certain section of your yard that you know block your vision from this specific spot in the sky. Well, if you want to, you can actually input that information into Stellarium. So that way, when you're searching for targets on a given night, you'll already know what portion of the sky is blocked out. So you don't see something and get super excited and slew your telescope over there just to find out that you can't see it because a tree is blocking your view. And this isn't just for astrophotographers either. It's an extremely useful tool for visual astronomy. In fact, when I was telling you earlier about the tool within Stellarium that lets you see you know, what your framed up photo will look like on any given target in the sky, they have the exact same functionality available for visual astronomy. So you can actually input the specifics of your telescope and even the type of eyepiece you are using and its focal length, and it will show you what the optical view of any given target is going to look like within that eyepiece. So, you know, say you've got a 25 millimeter plossal eyepiece in your Celestron 130 Astromaster telescope. Did I say Astromaster? I think Astrofy is what I meant to say. But it'll give you the specific view from that eyepiece so you can get a good idea of what things are going to look like. This can be an incredibly useful tool if you're thinking about purchasing something like a new camera or a new eyepiece, but you're not really sure you know, how it's going to work out in the long run. You know, what are the objects going to look like through this eyepiece if I buy it? Well, Stellarium is going to give you a very easy way to figure out exactly what it's going to look like. And that personally, I feel like is an invaluable tool. Another great feature that you can use within Stellarium is the equatorial grid. So this is a feature that you can turn on and it will actually paint a virtual equatorial time grid over the night sky for you. So this was an extremely valuable tool for me when I was first getting into astronomy and I did not really understand right ascension and declination. If somebody were to tell me, you know, 17 hours, right ascension, 32 degrees declination, I would have no clue what they were talking about. And it is a pretty difficult topic for a lot of people to really grasp initially. But when you have such a good visual aid like Stellarium provides and you can simulate time and understand how the two correlate, it begun, begins to become a, you know, graspable feature that you can understand and then, you know, use to continue exploring the night sky at your leisure. So that right there alone is something that I took uh, great pride in learning, you know, finally beginning to understand right ascension and declination. And I credit Stellarium 100% for that because it's an excellent tool that makes it easy to understand and you can customize it in just so many different ways um, that it really is just an invaluable tool. And finally, the last thing that I will touch on uh, regarding Stellarium is just going to be the uh, deep sky catalog. So there's actually a lot of different buttons in Stellarium that you can use to do things like uh, simulate speeding up time, uh, show the equatorial grid like we talked about earlier, show you know various magnitudes of different objects in the sky. But my favorite personally are the uh, deep sky objects 
that you can turn on by pressing D or clicking on the deep sky objects uh, icon at the bottom of the screen. And this pulls up for you all the various nebula that are in the night sky. And from there, you can actually zoom in on any of them and get a pretty good look at you know how that object actually looks in the night sky and then once you find a specific nebula let's say the north american nebula and you're like okay well i know that i want to shoot the north american nebula tonight but i don't know how it's going to look on my camera at that point you can open up the optics tool or the you know image sensor frame tool and that'll actually you know frame it up for you like we talked about earlier so it truly is a uh, one-stop shop for all your planning and learning of the night sky it's hands down the best planetarium software that I have found. Um, I know that there are some other planetarium softwares out there. And if any of you guys know of any that are, you know, excellent tools that maybe compete or even stand in the same field as Stellarium, uh, please feel free to tweet them at me or shoot me an email because I would love to look them over as I'm a big fan of planetarium software as it's helped me, you know, every step of the way along my astronomy journey. So I'm going to highly recommend uh, to anyone, whether you're new or a veteran, if you haven't checked out Stellarium, please go download it. Again, that's stellarium.org. I'll have it in the show notes for you. Um, go have a look at it. Play around with it. it. It can take a you know a little bit of time to learn the ins and outs of. There's lots of different tutorials online that you can use. YouTube is a great resource if you have any questions for how to install specific catalogs of objects or comets or meteors or whatever it is that you're looking for. And you can definitely find plenty of resources online uh, to help you learn Stellarium. All right, so that's pretty much it for Stellarium this week. Now I'd like to talk about our weekly recommendation. Uh, this is just the time I like to spend each week uh, talking about something cool that's uh, either astronomy or space related that I feel like other people, you know, might have a good deal of interest in. And this week I got something kind of unique. So what it's going to be, there is a website that I found a few years ago called minimuseum.com. And it's actually really cool. If, uh, if you're anything like me, I love collecting stuff. And anytime I can get something cool that is space related, I'm always on it. Just look at my Lego collection, which has the Saturn V rocket, the space shuttle, the lunar lander, etc. So what in particular uh, drew me to Mini Museum, and uh, I actually referred my wife to it because she ended up buying me a gift from there from Christmas, is their actual collection of mission-flown pieces of command module foil for the Apollo mission. So they have, for example, uh, I own the Apollo 11 command module foil, and this is a piece of the command module that's neatly framed up in a small display case. It's a very tiny piece. It's like, you know, one millimeter by one millimeter or something like that. It's very small, obviously, because something this historical is a very high value. But what they're able to do is buy a big piece of that you know, Apollo command module foil and then cut it up into tiny little segments. And that way everybody can buy a piece of it for a really reasonable price. This is like one of my favorite things that I own and it's not that expensive. It was only $69 is what it's going for right now. And they still have them in stock on the website. They also have a lot of other cool stuff from the space program, including I believe they've got pieces of the, uh, various space shuttles, like the tires that they landed on and those types of things. So definitely check those out. I will uh, put the link in the show notes for it, but it's a uh, shop.minimuseum.com if you want to check it out. Again, um, own a piece of the Apollo 11 command module. That's, you know, the original 
Saturn V space mission that got us to the moon. If you wanted to own an actual piece that landed on the moon, that's what this is. So I find it to be incredibly cool. It's a really neat talking piece. Um, I always like to show it to anyone that's also into space and they always get a real good kick out of it. And it's like I say, it's pretty affordable. They actually offer a shop pay over there too. So you can split it up into four payments and only pay like 17 bucks every couple of weeks or something. It's a cool way to own a small piece of history. And as an astronomer, it's it's hard to own pieces of actual, you know, historical stuff, but this is a way that we can actually do that and, uh, you know, keep a piece for ourselves. So that's going to be this week's recommendation. And uh, finally, before we wrap it up today, I just wanted to mention one more time. I think I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, but if you are not aware, we are going to have a total solar eclipse in April, uh, specifically April 8th, that is going to be crossing through uh, Mexico and North America and a large part of the United States and a small part of Canada. And if that is something that you have interest in seeing or have not seen before, I would highly recommend that you look into doing it. A few minutes of totality darkness is just unlike anything you've ever experienced if you haven't experienced a solar eclipse firsthand. They are exceedingly rare in our part of the world. Uh, generally speaking, you know, every year there's going to be a solar eclipse somewhere on the planet, but not necessarily within driving distance of those of us in the United States. I'm still kicking around the idea of doing it myself. I looked up, it looks like where I am in Charlotte, North Carolina, we are going to get about 80% totality, so it'll still be very cool, but it's not going to be dark out. And uh, I am considering heading out west, uh, you know, for a couple of days just to go check it out. Maybe bring my photography gear and get some really cool photos. I think the last one, if it, I believe it was back in 2016 when it happened, um, I was able to get some pretty decent photos and videos, but nothing like I could get these days. And I'm just such a more capable photographer these days that I feel like I could get some really amazing pictures during totality and also just of the sun moving over the sky at a time lapse and those sorts of things. So uh, plan ahead though, you know, if you're thinking about traveling to see the solar eclipse, I would remind you that hotels in these areas are going to be booked up. It's going to be harder and harder to find a hotel the closer we get. I think it's only about a hundred mile stretch of the United States that it's going to be passing through. So, you know, if you're staying within that hundred miles, you can expect it to be pretty busy um, as far as hotels are concerned. Uh, make sure that you get things like solar viewing glasses ahead of time. You can order a pair of those on High Point Scientific. So you have those already ready to go. And it's not something that you have to scramble for a few days before the eclipse. And finally, if you want to photograph the eclipse, eclipse or take pictures of it with your telescope, make sure you have a solar filter. Do not point your camera, whether it be your smartphone, your mirrorless or DSLR camera, or your cooled astronomy camera directly at the sun without a solar filter. You will fry your sensor and it will be a bad time. Um, you know, during totality, yeah, you could take a picture with your smartphone. Of course you could. But generally speaking, it is not a good idea to point your sensor at the sun without having proper solar protection on it. So if you need to order that, order it ahead of time. Even if you can't get a super fancy, expensive solar filter, they sell solar films that will work so you can at least get a photo. And that's something that you'll want to look into ahead of time as well. Uh, make sure that you make your travel arrangements well in advance. Um, it's going to be a pretty long drive for me. I got to get 
from the looks of it all the way through Tennessee. I think Ohio might be the closest uh, route for me to go drive up through Virginia, West Virginia, and then in through Ohio. I'm going to have to look and see, you know, which, which one is closest. I think clear over the Appalachian mountains though, and all the way through Tennessee is going to be a long drive. So I'm not sure. I'm still kicking around the idea. I may go, I may not, I haven't decided yet, but I will let you guys know. And then uh, finally, the one last thing that I will say before we get out of here is that I have finally set up the uh, date for the interview for our first guest on the show. Uh, We should be doing that recording this coming weekend. So I'm hoping maybe we'll have out that episode, you know, this time next week. Um, If not, you know, then I'll try to get it out within the next couple of weeks. So actually got a couple of other interviews uh, brewing as well, waiting to hear back from a couple people and confirm a couple of things. So exciting things on the horizon there. I appreciate all of you guys so much uh, that have been keeping up with the show and listening in. The numbers keep going up. We're getting, you know, more and more listens. If you're one of the people here from Reddit, I posted last week on Reddit and I was kind of blown away by how many responses and views that I got. It was way more than I get on any of my other social media channels. And that includes, you know, sharing with my family and friends. Reddit is just such an awesome community of astronomers and astrophotographers. And I want to thank you so much for coming and listening to the show. If you saw my post on Reddit about the Astrocast. So if you're coming from Reddit, uh, thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking an hour out of your day to listen to the Astrocast. It means a lot to me. And uh, I'm going to do my best to keep putting out great content for you guys every week. And uh, that's going to do it for this week. So thank you so much for tuning in. You got a few more nights of new moonish type skies. Hopefully it's clear wherever you are. But if it's not, maybe uh, sit down and pick insight and work on some of that processing. So I appreciate you guys listening today. Thank you so much for tuning into the AstroCast and we will see you next week. Clear skies. still sitting here again aren't you yeah i know you are i'm gonna run out of podcast if you guys don't stop doing this all right all right brad and will made a tech pod go listen to that one they got a lot of episodes for you to catch up on hopefully that'll keep you busy until next week clear skies